Hello and welcome back to Terry Talks Fiction. Today we're going to be talking about video games, a form of interacting with fiction that's been near and dear to me for as long as I can remember. I've always been fascinated by gaming, borderline addicted to it, but only for a very specific form of video game. Those that include a rich and meaningful narrative element. And last year, when I find myself aching for an escape, it was mostly the Nintendo Switch I found myself reaching for. And so, here are the top four narrative-driven video games that I poured hours of my life into over the past 12 months. And the first one of these is the Bioshock Collection. Playing through the three games of the by now ancient Bioshock trilogy was an interesting mix of the familiar and the new. Of course, I'd heard about the original Bioshock through high school as this new and phenomenal gaming experience, and I'd quite memorably had the entire Andrew Ryan speech, you know the one, reenacted to me with no foreplay whatsoever during a dull moment of a school assembly when one of my friends who'd loved the game had got bored. And even years after that event, but before I'd played it, the words a man chooses, a slave obeys, elicited a weirdly anxiety-reducing response thanks to that. But my entry into the series was actually the second game, which I fell in love with immediately for the underwater barnacle-encrusted aesthetic of the Fallen Rapture. And yes, I even did love that game for its story. But as someone who doesn't really like deep tracts of water myself, the crushing weight of being underwater in Rapture was something that was sort of tangible and visceral for me at the time, and really something I hadn't experienced before, enough certainly to make me want to check out the rest of the series. And when I later went back and played the original game, I was completely blown away by the difference between the two. While the second game definitely had a story, and one that was good enough to invest me in the series at that, the story and the world building of the first, the character work and the voice acting, all shone like something truly special. And so, my appetite now well and truly whetted, I picked up the third game in the series pretty soon after its release, and I just never finished it. I got about to the third of the way through and put it down, when I realised I'd honestly just rather go to bed, and I never picked it up again. There was something indefinably different, but very present, about the way the story was being told, and the world it was being told in, that just didn't grab me in the city of Columbia, like it grabbed me in the city of Rapture. Now fast forward to 2020, and I saw the trilogy as a set going on sale on the Switch, and I saw my opportunity to finally finish it off, start to finish all downloadable content at the same time. I mean, I had nowhere else to be, hey? And let me tell you, I'm glad that I did. Although I personally was left a bit disappointed by the events of the final expansion to Bioshock 3, 
when you did return to Rapture in earnest for the first time since Bioshock 2, I appreciate the style of the storytelling and the overall direction of the narrative and world building by establishing and exploring the multiverse of Rapture and Columbia far more than I appreciated it the first time I played the games. Bioshock 1 really was something special at the time it was released, and it left enough ripples in narrative-driven games that came in its wake for that impact still to be felt today. After all, how many games do you play nowadays that have the environmental storytelling of leftover audio diaries or video diaries or written notes that together build the picture of the world that you're not seeing through the gameplay? It was all those little moments, the attention to detail moments, that really grabbed me and drew me in and made me a part of the creative experience, filling in those gaps by myself as much or as little as I wanted. And of course, because it was me who just needs, viscerally needs to understand the full context of whatever work of fiction I'm consuming, it meant that I would spend hours and hours combing through every single nook and cranny of every single room of the game looking for the telltale little flash that told me that an audio diary was there. Thank heavens for in-game achievements that told me when I got all of them. But for all the similarities, its two sequels simply don't match that same level of glory in Bioshock 1. Which is not to say they're not still special in their own right. And after finishing my time on the floating city of Columbia, I can see why people view the game that brought me to the series, Bioshock 2, as the pariah of the bunch, even if I do retain a very soft spot for it. Once I let myself really experience the floating city, Columbia was great, and it was the setting for a really interesting story, a very different style of story to the one that was being told in Bioshock 1. But I feel it was also a bit of a herald for gaming storytelling to come, with a lot of the elements I wanted to see in the narrative just passed by, and character motivations needing to only be good enough to keep the player moving forward, instead of being deeply compelling in their own right. Still, it drew me in well enough to make a spot on my list, and as a tied-together trilogy, If you're a gamer who hasn't played them yet, then this is a great way to experience everything that Rapture and Columbia has to offer, tied up in the one bundle, and all the interlacing context of the storytelling ripe for discovery. And if that's too much for you, at least definitely treat yourself to the first game in the series if you haven't already. The second game I want to talk about today has a very different approach to its storytelling and the way that the narrative is presented to the player. And that game is the Paper Mario aping small studio darling, Bug Fables. Now, I never played Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door, so I wasn't hanging out for Bug Fables like a lot of the Paper Mario fans seem to have been. It was simply a game I'd heard was pretty good, and so I decided to give it a go. And let me tell you, I fell in love with this game almost immediately. 
from the adorable paper crafters aesthetic of the world to the lashings of humor that crackle off the screen every few minutes to just the engaging narrative that kept me exploring all around the overgrown backyard that is the nation of Bulgaria, I was utterly swept away. And sure, like the Paper Mario that came before it, the narrative really is very straightforward and simple, but it was put to great effect in the game as a vehicle to showcase the artistic creativity of the entire form. Companion quests gave you the excuse to explore new areas of the game and feel satisfied that you were doing so for tangible narrative reasons, rather than just an excuse to show you something a little bit different in the visuals or the gameplay style. And the payoffs for the three central characters led into a growth that was shown by the writing ever after, even in the main storyline. I was particularly fond of the quest where the team sorcerer, Leaf, goes on a quest to reclaim his lost memories. A cliché beginning as you can get for a character arc, but one which in this resolves so well as the environmental storytelling crescendos along with the narrative to lead the player into suspecting exactly what ends up being revealed, but where the suspicion only enhances the power of that climax when it does happen and you get to see the other characters all react to that knowledge. And the same can be said for the other major quest chains of the game, whether you're bringing two sisters closer together or exacting vengeance on the beast that murdered someone's friends, whether you're helping a young queen shuck the weight of living up to her mother's shadow, or you're climbing a mountain with a literal praying mantis to deliver a plate of oranges to a flower god. There's always something to do that will make you want to pick up the controller and see what's coming next in the story. And even if you don't, the power of this as a video game means that there are plenty of other things to do as well. Playing retro arcade games, or not so retro in the case of the Flappy Bird clone, or playing the in-game card game that you get from collecting data on the enemies you face, or even doing the boss rush modes for training purposes and to earn yourself another medal or two. There's plenty to do in the game with really creative elements that sometimes feed into the narrative, but other times just stand as something delightful to do all of its own. And alongside the creativity in those tasks and in the quests and in the narrative, the characters of this game are simply adorable and fascinating in equal measure. Every single character being some kind of sentient bug is creative in and of itself, but the mixture of how they speak and act according to what kind of bug they are, whether they're an ant or a bee or a praying mantis, the kinds of tasks that they do are really interesting. You've got ants with aphid farms or bees with this industrialized honey-making factory. And I was particularly fond of the neon-lit streets of Termite City, buried in their mound and far away from the sun and therefore being the only civilization in the game to have that sort of neon grim gritty city aesthetic. It's super fun to see all the little references to actual entomology that are peppered throughout the tale, and the effect of things like a isolated pocket of cordyceps or an abandoned human house, to see what those things do on the society that these plucky little bugs have built is really fun. 
Add on top of that some truly great systems in the battle screens and inventory management, and, of course, all with this brilliantly creative veneer to fit the insect theme, and you've got everything you need to make a wonderful gaming experience. Seriously, if you take nothing else from this podcast, go out and try Bug Fables. Of all the games that I played this year, I poured the most hours into this one because I just didn't want to leave its brightly coloured joy behind. And I'm sure that you're going to love it too. But going from hyper-stylized to stylized hyperspace, the next game that I delved into during 2020 was Obsidian Entertainment's vision of the corporate future in the outer worlds. Unlike Bug Fables, which I hadn't really heard of before, this is a game that I was hanging out for. I've been a long-time fan of the Fallout franchise, and when I heard that there was this very holy merger between Obsidian, the company that gave us Fallout New Vegas, and a Wild West over-corporatized space aesthetic, I was immediately in. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that the game delivered on everything I was hoping for. The system of Halcyon is a mess, completely rotting in more ways than one, thanks to the overwhelming corporate control of its citizens. I mean, this is a society where it's even the law that a person's favourite song must only be one of the megacorporation's commercial jingles. It's a place where burial plots must be booked and paid for every year until you die, and then your family will be expected to front the interment costs for every year after that. It's a place where falling into working machinery and losing an arm is viewed as a terrible, terrible thing. For the company, whose inability to profit while your gristle is being cleaned out from the machine means that you'll be paying off the costs in fines for the rest of your life. A life that you can expect to be spent in indentured servitude to the company that you sabotaged with your negligence. It's a horrifying, grim take on what's an all-too-easily-believable future when corporations get you decades of superliminal flight away from Earth and give you no hope of returning. Add on top of that some really actually cool science fiction threading through the main questline, and you've got a wonderful story that will keep you driving forward as you blast away at cannibal raiders, corporate commandos, and brutal alien fauna. I was surprised by how interesting the central angle was. You, being rescued from a derelict colony ship left to idle decades after it arrived in its system off-course, are tasked by your mad scientist rescuer to find a way to revive the remaining colonists, whose overly long cryostasis means that without careful sciencing, they'll now simply puddle into a mess of unwound protein and DNA when they're thawed out. So far, so standard for a role-playing game of this ilk, but... When you discover the motivation behind the corporate board's decision to leave the good ship Hope as a derelict, and the problem that they're hoping to use the frozen colonists to solve, I was really impressed by the simpleness of the creativity behind it, taking some really obvious science that's not often explored in colonial science fiction. Although, if you've played Mass Effect and have ever tried seducing Garrus, The rather specific biological problem involved with that might give you a hint into the broad avenue that this game's taking as well. 
Moreover, I was impressed by just how many of the side quests ended up being directly related back to the central narrative problem, a relationship which was only visible in retrospect when you understood the full context of the game. And that layered style of storytelling where a single piece of information can cascade the reader, or in this case the gamers, understanding of all past events that led up to that point is exactly what I live for in a narrative. Even some of the companion quests, which were delightful, brushed up against some of this central problem in really subtle ways, such as the cargo a certain pirated ship was carrying, or a character remarking in passing that certain fruits don't taste the same to them as they did when they were a kid. It's really clever, and bringing up the companion quests is of course not at all an excuse for me to gush over a particular companion's quest, where you basically play matchmaker for an adorable pair of dorks, and for which each quest in the chain is titled after a different science fiction novel by Tanith Lee. And also you can't look past the fact that the game is simply hilarious. It has all the wit and charm you'd expect from the game studio that began the Fallout franchise. And characters like Martin the Moon Man, the horribly depressed sales mascot contractually obliged to wear his enormous bobblehead even when he's on the toilet, will long live in my heart. Well worth playing, and apart from the load times which can get a little tooth grindy, especially when you're playing on the hardest difficulty and one of your companions bites the dust so you want to load an old save to avoid their permadeath, the game actually functions really well on the Switch, considering the graphical power of that plucky little console. And speaking of plucky little things which turned out to be phenomenal, I'm going to complete this list with a game that, despite all my best efforts, I just couldn't complete, thanks to one lazy little dude in a hoodie and slippers. And that game is 2015's Breakout Success by Toby Fox. Undertale. There's simply no better way to say this than Undertale is an incredible game with a hell of a lot of heart. It was amazing to me how something drawn and animated so simply could affect me so profoundly. I'm not a guy that usually cries at video games, but to slightly spoil some of it for the ending, so plug your fingers in your ears and say la 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 for about five seconds if you don't want to hear it, but I was openly weeping, with the biggest damn grin on my face when Frisk and Toriel were standing hand in hand on top of the mountain and looking to their future life in the town below at the end of the game. What an incredible experience it was. And it could only have been so thanks to the incredible writing and incredible characters that sold it. God, the characters. There is so much personality and love oozing from each of these shoddily pixelated little creatures. You can't help but adore people like Papyrus, the skeleton who wants so desperately to be a royal guard but also is just incapable of doing anything except wanting to be everybody's friend like a lovesick puppy. A lovesick puppy made of bones.
and Undyne, the apex predator of overachievement, and the hilarity of her courtship with Alphys, the hilarity of Metaton and their performances, and the underlying bittersweetness of the truth behind Metaton's creation and success. The characters mercilessly draw you in and make you feel like you're really making an impact on their lives, whether that's for good or bad. As far as the narrative for this goes, like everything else, Undertale is beautiful in its simplicity. It's essentially a game which is relentlessly about the power of goodness and love, and the power when those things are absent. It is incurably wholesome, and it is delightful for it. And for an RPG, there are no real puzzles, there are no experience points, or at least there aren't if you play it the way I played it on my first playthrough. But all the other rules of the genre are there, and so it feels familiar to anyone who's ever played an RPG before, even with these changed elements. But the simplistic graphics of the game, and the simplistic gameplay, betrays a really complex nature and a sinister undercurrent in the way that the game plays the player as the player is playing the game. Leaning in on the genre conventions and tropes in order to subvert them and pull the rug out from you at every opportunity, the story of life and the timeline under the mountain is really interesting made even more so by the way the game delivers the information to you and gradually builds up your understanding of the narrative, a contextual layering as dynamic as any archaeological excavation could be. Going back over the same areas more than once and getting different, slightly different information each time which starts to build up that sense of unease and disquiet in your awareness as you start to wonder what the true story that's going on here might be, is thoroughly engaging and pulled off so well. But it wasn't just these large, sweeping narrative parts of the experience that really got me. It was the small moments. Things like being told that I'd made a snowman happy, or wandering back through the world and talking to everyone I'd interacted with during the game until I got to have one final chat with my best friend really choked me up. Every part of this game made me feel full of joy and hope and wonder, and it was exactly the escape I needed in the early months of 2020. And then, with nothing else left in the game to do, I started what is known as the Genocide playthrough. And it was horrible. From the moment the game begged me not to do it, to the grim absence of sound and the lack of all joy, as the word determination just seared itself onto the screen over and over again, the game really made me feel like the monster that I was playing. Right up until the penultimate act, when Sans, the one truly iconically laid-back guy of the game, finally stepped in my way and told me I wouldn't get any further. And I didn't. Armed with only a handful of dog salad, I just wasn't up to the task. 
But the beauty of Undertale is that even after literal months of trying to get past this frustrating little dude, I honestly really don't mind. The idea that my repeated failure to get past Sans in that corridor, and that that means he's doing his job of holding me off from completing the game, doesn't bother me at all, because I get to believe that somewhere in the game system, those characters I loved so much in my true pacifist run have actually escaped me and are getting to safety. And when a game can make me think about it in that way, where it brings the narrative beyond the story and becomes a part of how I'm playing, that's a real, real hallmark of absolute excellence. But how about you? Did you play many video games last year or did you find yourself turning away from them? What was your favourite? I'd love to hear it either at terrytalksfiction at gmail.com if you want to shoot me an email or over on the Terry Talks Fiction Discord or Facebook pages or on Twitter. If you've got a game you want to gush about or if you had a different experience with one of the games that made my list, I'd love to talk it over and even feature your comments on the upcoming Listener's Choices podcast for the best of 2020. But until next week, I'm going to leave you with the hope that you can enjoy some great fiction of whatever stripe you enjoy the most. Take care, and we'll talk again soon.